Welcome to Give and Take. It's the podcast where yours truly, Scott Jones, talks with authors, artists, activists, theologians, philosophers, political pundits, scholars, and a host of others about their work and the lens through which they experience life. I engage my guests in a free-flowing conversation that's entertaining, unexpected, occasionally bizarre, and hopefully enlightening above all. Thanks for listening to this episode of Give and Take. In 22 BC, amid a series of natural disasters and political and economic crises, a mob locked Rome senators into the Senate House and threatened to burn them alive if they did not make Augustus dictator. Why did Rome, to this day, one of the world's longest living republics, exchange freedom for autocracy? In Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny, prize-winning historian Edward J. Watts presents a new history of the fall of the Roman Republic that explains why Rome made this trade. Watts reveals how for centuries, Rome's governing institutions, parliamentary rules, and political customs succeeded in fostering compromise and negotiation. Even amid moments of crisis like Hannibal's invasion of Italy in the 210s BC, Rome's Republic proved remarkably resilient and it continued to function well as Rome grew into the premier military and political power in the Mediterranean world. Watts asserts that the death of Rome's Republic was not inevitable. It died because it was allowed to. As a result of thousands of small wounds inflicted by Romans who assumed that it would last forever. Mortal Republic makes clear that in ancient Rome, as today, when citizens take the health and durability of their republic for granted, its future is at risk. It's a great book, and we had a great conversation about it. I give you Edward Watts. Ed, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. I'm really glad to be here. You've written a new book, Mortal Republic, How Rome Fell into Tyranny. I mean, it's sort of the the bittersweet reality of like, our time, it's like, it's awful that you, you have to write a book like this, but it's great because like your advanced degree has contemporary relevance. It's like bittersweet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, it's interesting because when I started teaching Roman history about 15 years ago, uh, everybody wanted to talk about the empire. And in the, you know, the context of the Iraq war, everybody was talking about imperial overextension and the decline of the empire. And the Republic was this thing that was kind of abstract and, you know, interesting, but not particularly relevant. And I've seen, especially in the last, you know, since about 2015, um, that's shifted completely. And what we've ended up with is now, you know, students think the empire, you know, it's interesting, but it's kind of abstract. And the Republic is what's relevant. Um, and that's that's intriguing, and it's I think alarming to see that that shift has happened um, because of quite legitimate uh, problems that are going on in in the way the United States government is functioning. Yeah, and it's interesting, right? Because and you kind of chart this in your book, but but it's sequential too. There's interest, like it's funny that sequential that happens, but that that's part of the problem, right? That the the empire as it get it's, it gets expansive. As the Republic becomes an empire and gets expansive, that's the threat to the Republic, right? You're like, you've got to, it, it costs a lot of money. It, like the resource, the resources to run an empire are different than sort of like the perceived golden age of the Republic. And so you, some of the sort of civic traditions that you take for granted just are harder to function when you are, have an empire on that scale, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was talking to a colleague a, a few weeks ago and, you know, basically what, what we were sort of hashing out is, you know, what is the Roman Republic actually about? 
And when it's set up, what it's actually about is uh, giving citizens of the Roman, you know, of the Roman state a voice in what's going on around them and giving them responsibilities to be sure that they're doing something to ensure that state succeeds. And when the Republic is working very well, most of what it controls are either citizens or people who are allied strongly enough with Rome that they're invested in kind of the success of the enterprise. But once it starts expanding dramatically in the second century BC, it starts getting all of this territory that it it extracts resources from. And it's not in any way really responsible for making sure that the people in those territories do well. As long as they don't rebel and they pay their taxes and they give you the resources you want, that's fine. Um, but that really does change the Republic because the Republic now becomes something that, you know, is doing kind of two things. It's supposed to be securing the interests of its citizens, but it's also kind of running this, this imperial enterprise that extracts tons of resources from everywhere around the Mediterranean, and then distributes that to citizens. And it doesn't distribute it equally. Um, and that's the sort of central tension that starts unwinding the Republic. Yeah, and it's interesting because you talk about a li- in the book that explicitly, like, hey, one of the reasons this is relevant to think about is our founding fathers w- were very conscious of the Roman Republic structure. They There was a lot they took from it and learned from it. And, and you think about like Washington on the way out saying, look, beware of foreign entanglements, beware of, you know, this, this wariness of standing armies and things that they seem to know, right. That, that they, they seem to have learned this lesson that, that this would, could damage their Republic too, right? Like if, if they became expansionist, you know, they could, this young thing, they knew it was fragile. Yeah. I I think that what we sometimes forget is, uh, you know, how deeply read in Roman history, the founding fathers actually were, I mean, this this was the sort of educational foundations that they all kind of went through. And so they knew this stuff deeply. And when they were sitting down to think about how you could make the United States work following the Articles of Confederation and the, the sort of failure of that, that sort of system of government, um, they were really inspired by what they had seen in the Roman example and the success that it had uh, in basically – exerting or creating um, a mechanism that enabled people with really diverse interests uh, to, to find compromised positions and build political consensus. And the United States, you know, it was very large and there was a lot of diversity in the sort of economic interests and social interests and religious interests in the 13 colonies. And so finding something where the structure of the government promoted consensus and encouraged compromise was actually key to making the government work. Um, And the Roman example is a great sort of model for that if you're going to apply um, the the lessons of Rome in the way that the the founders of the Roman Republic uh, really intended them to be applied. Yeah. And and just like then, right, and now, like now, just like then, that sometimes I feel People think that the checks and balances are a bug in the system, not a feature. And this is where populism just gets frustrated, right? The imperial expansion, things don't work as well. And people grow tired of the checks and balances. And yeah, well, I'll get it done. Here we go. You know, like, let's make Rome great again. I mean, you, you, you know, you, you have the right, like you have this people lose track of what of what the sort of uh, things that would gum up the works, like why that was not a bug. Exactly. The yeah. The checks and balances um, are designed around this idea that Romans had, but also I think the founding fathers had, that it's better to do nothing than to do the wrong thing. 
And it's better to do nothing uh, than to do something that 50% plus one person agrees is the right thing. Because if you have 49% or you have 50% minus one person opposing a policy, that policy doesn't have buy-in. And it's something that will be contentious and remain contentious for as long as it's relevant to what's going on. And so the system of checks and balances is really designed to build this kind of supermajority consensus around ideas. But it works on this assumption that people are going to be negotiating in good faith. You know, that, that you're actually going to look to find a policy that 60% of the people can agree on or 70% of the people can agree on. And if you don't negotiate in good faith and instead you kind of double down on just opposing people that you don't like, the system won't work. Um, and then the checks and balances become a bug because you're not actually you're not actually governing in the way the republic needs and wants you to be governing. You're in you're in essence kind of misusing the tools that are supposed to make the republic work um, to try to destroy you know elements of the republic that you find inconvenient or you know distasteful. Yeah, I'm struck in the opening of the book. You talk about uh, the speech by uh, Appius Claudius. The senator, right? He's blind. His sons carry him. It's very dramatic, and you tell it really well. And the, here you have the the you have a uh, uh, Pyrrhus of Epirus is 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 at the gates. I mean, you know, they're pounding Rome, and they don't take a peace deal. And that's remarkable to me that like that in a sort of a group model, they, they could make a decision that bold. And consistently, you talk about while the republic's functioning in those third second century like they they consistently can make hard decisions and and be resolute in them right like we're not going to lose this war if we do this it's going every everybody's going to beat down our door knowing that we'll capitulate and so we have to have resolve and it's amazing that that the the senate could be that resilient in a sense it's everyone um the remarkable thing about the republic and you know in the third century and even into the second century is that there is this incredible ability, you know, to, to not make decisions quickly, but once you make a decision, you own that decision. And as a society, you own that decision. And so the Republic in some cases makes decisions that are, you know, really kind of dangerous. And the decision to keep fighting Pyrrhus of Epirus was a dangerous decision. Um, it could have gone wrong. And if it went wrong, uh, it would have gone wrong very badly. You know, Rome probably would have lost, you know, it would have lost its alliance structure. It might have lost its own territory. Um, but what the Romans sort of decided was in the context of a war, if you start fighting, you need to finish it. Um, and that means that you need to sort of throw whatever resources are necessary in to make that fight a successful one. Uh, and many of the third century wars that Rome fought, Rome won because they simply were willing to devote more to the struggle than the people they were fighting. And it's true of Pyrrhus of Epirus, but it's also true of Carthage. Um, the Romans simply outlasted the Carthaginians and they threw more of their economy and more of their manpower into the war than Carthage was able to and than Carthage was willing to. Yeah, and it's interesting. You, I had a guest on a few weeks ago, a guy who was who's American born, but became an Israeli citizen and, and is wrote an interesting book about the future of Judaism. But he was remarking in the book, he says, you know, Israel, if you look at GDP spending is something like fifth or sixth of the GDP in the military. But he said, we're the most militarized country in the world. And he wasn't saying this, right? It's just, it was being descriptive. I mean, it's just, this is reality because every citizen 
is, is, is conscripted. And so all of our education, if you look at all the non-GDP intangibles that go into it, and so everybody has a lot of skin in the game. And you talk about the empire, like, right, in, 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 in the better ages of the Republic, the military, the sense of civic spirit and military service was spread out among the citizenry. And then in the decline happens when you get this professional military class, right? Because it becomes a lot more mercenary. People are disconnected from the conflicts in ways they aren't earlier on. And so there's, there's eerie parallels, right, in our own time. Yeah. The, I mean, the real big change that happens um, is in the late part of the second century when individual commanders start recruiting people who are basically serving under those commanders in expectation of getting something. You know, getting in some cases land, um, in other cases bonuses, or in some cases just getting a lot of plunder from defeating an enemy. Um, but in all of those cases, <clears throat> that something that you get is, is first of all, it's tangible. But then second of all, it depends on that individual. And the Romans didn't quite immediately understand that what that meant was ultimately those armies are going to be, if they're forced to choose, more loyal to the individual than they are to the state. And it took a generation before somebody actually marched an army on Rome, you know, and took what was a state resource and personalized it. Um, but the seeds for that were sown when you started creating a structure where armies were serving under individuals and were basically going to be receiving rewards because of the initiatives and the sort of political power of that individual. It's interesting. I heard a lecture once. This guy, historian, was saying like one of the differences between like certain Chinese dynasties and and the things that caused Rome to decline is like they had all these bureaucratic positions they could give people in China. So it's because right when you're when you're when you're working on this mercenary system, there's only so much land you can conquer. There's only so much stuff, right? Like like you you run out of places to conquer, right? You run out of and then and then you got the tensions like you're saying, managing the places you're conquering. Like it, it's. It's one of those things where, like, it it's it becomes like an autoimmune disease, right? I mean, the, the, like, you're, you're eating, you're getting eaten from the inside out. Yeah, this is actually a really interesting feature of Roman imperialism. It's basically privatized. <clears throat> um, the tax collection, the mineral extraction, all of these things are contracted out to ba to Roman businessmen, and this is where the sort of economic inequality sort of grows out of because these businessmen pay up front, and so they take out huge loans that are then resold through the Roman economic system. And this creates something that's not so different from the subprime mortgage crisis, where you you know you take out this loan to collect taxes in a province, um, you have to pay for three years up front or two years up front. Um, you don't have that kind of money. Nobody has that kind of money. So you cobble together a loan, you put that loan in, you go, and then you collect those taxes, um, and then and, you, and hopefully connect collect more than like. The th that's how you make a profit, right? Like, okay, right. this is X dollars, X you know, needs denarii, whatever needs to come from this price. Well, anything I get over that is gravy, right? It's my profit. Exactly. Budget. Exactly. This is why in the Bible, there's that story about Zacchaeus, the tax collector, and everybody hates this guy. And you were, you were, you were hearing it in church where you're like, why do they hate this guy? Well, because he's an extortionist. Exactly. <laughs> like, it's not just the IRS. I mean, it's, it's, it's an extortion racket. Exactly. And he's got to pay back his loan. He's got to pay back the interest and he's got to make something for his, for his profit, you know, for his own uh, time. And as you move through the imperial period, that gets less and less. Um, and by the end of the third century, the Roman Empire has a really robust bureaucracy that does a lot of that stuff. Um, 
but in the Republic, they don't have that bureaucracy and they don't really want to have that bureaucracy. Instead, they have basically sort of a privatized set of mechanisms to extract wealth. Um, and so I think you're right that there are mechanisms in the empire once you have a sort of imperial structure and one guy is essentially responsible for the success or failure of the state, they do have to create things like what you're talking about in China. Um, but in the Republic, they don't. They don't think it's necessary. They don't particularly want to do it. And you're exactly right that that gives you less sort of resources to kind of stave off problems um, because the bureaucracy is really minuscule. Um, it's really quite small. I'm struck too by you talk about like I think Octavius right is a transitional figure that is is somebody that's replacing the republic republican structures and marching towards the autocracy that you describe but you know it, you know the republic didn't have a constitution so like it's interesting because our founding fathers and you talk about that short you, you just mentioned the confederation period it's not working there's this marvelous you know imperfect but genius set of compromises the constitution set up and and you, but unlike like England, there is no real constitution in the Republic, right? There's, there's, so, I mean, how do you, is it, it just, so much of it is norms, right? There's there, just cultural norms that develop and, and sort of inform the, the, the democratic, the Republic structure. Yeah. I mean, that's a huge part of it. There, there are laws and there are legal structures, but, and there are conventions um, that are sort of legally binding. But most of what governs behavior is this kind of understanding that this is just not done. You know, if, if you're Tiberius Gracchus and you uh, don't like what another tribune is doing, well, you basically just have to traditionally suck it up, find some way to work with this person. And if you can't, then you can't get what you want and, and you move on. Um, and in the second century, people start saying, well, why can't I do that? You know, there's no law that says I can't do that. And the response is always, well, because it's not done. And the reason it's not done is because it, you know, causes a problem that we don't want to have in our system. But there's no law that says that some of the behaviors that really prove incredibly corrosive in the second and first centuries, there's no law that says that can't happen. Um, but there are very deep-seated, centuries-old norms that say it shouldn't happen. And the tension in the Republic is... Um, between people who are trying to kind of game the system for short-term gain and people who want to preserve the mechanisms that actually made the Republic succeed. And actually, you yeah, know, I, here we have that same issue with stuff like uh, the Merrick Garland nomination. There's nothing that said McConnell had to have a vote on Merrick Garland. There's no Right. Constit constitutionally, it, it, it's not, it's not, yeah, he didn't do anything wrong constitutionally, but you're right. It's it's one of these things where it's you talk about uh, the spirit versus the letter of the law, right? Like you talk about in the book that you these conventions can just as easily be used to manipulate for corruption. It's just that they weren't done that widely in previous generations, and all of a sudden people just say, "Well, we can do it. Why not?" Exactly, and that gets to that that point that we talked about earlier. That idea of putting yourself above the state. Right? If, if you're a general who marches your army on Rome, what you've done is taken a state resource. You know, those soldiers were recruited to serve the Roman Republic, not you. Um, you've taken a state resource and you've used it against the state. Uh, and that means you're putting your own self-interest above the interests of everybody else and the interests of the Republic as an institution. Um, but that's done on smaller levels as well. You know, every time that you do something where you violate one of those norms because you think it's good for you, you're benefiting yourself at the expense of the state. 
um, and the integrity of the state. Yeah, and you talk about how it's not that there wasn't self-interest, but the the Republican culture and saying like the third century BC, right? Like it, they figured out a way to incentivize honor, right? So it, it so you the the kind of way your self-interest and the state's civic interest, like these kind of were in tandem. So you got reward. It's always that thing we always say in America, right? If you work hard and play by the rules, you can get ahead. You know, like the, the, the even if that the American dream is evaporating for many people, but but that's sort of the, that's sort of the thing, right? And the, there there was this try, attempt to make it. Hey, if you work hard and play by the rules, you can get ahead in the republic. And even you know, any society has class and and power. But even there was there was there was a social mobility right about that that was unusual in the ancient world. I mean, it, it was a mobile system for ambitious people that's that's true um what you what you have in say the third century is this economy of honor where the stuff that really matters you know that makes you an impactful and important person in in roman society in say like 280 bc um it's what kind of offices you hold it's what kind of service you did for the state and it's how you and your family have a tradition of behaving positively and doing good things for the for the republic and the Republic owns that, you know, all of the rewards in that system are controlled by the Republic. So getting wealthy doesn't matter all that much. You know, what matters is actually getting honors. <clears throat> and as you move into the second century, that starts to break, you know, things start to become important that the Republic doesn't directly control, you know, things like getting money, um, things like getting these, you know, contracts to extract minerals and, that uh, creates a set of challenges in the Republic because it no longer monopolizes what's important to Romans. I mean, this is interesting, too, because you talk about in the conclusion of the book, like the Republic didn't have to fail. It wasn't inevitable. But I wonder how much just scale, I mean, how much Republican systems have to require some limits on scale because the bigger things get and unwieldy, the harder a system with, again, checks and balances that are not a bug or a feature like, does that make it harder to run a republic when you when you expand, 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 and 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 when you're getting bigger and bigger, and 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 the economy gets more complex? I mean, you see this in our in our own history. Like, the, I mean, the founding fathers never imagined that you'd have a federal government as large and bureaucratic as we have now, but just on, on scale. I mean, how how would you run? I mean, this is. I wonder if just massive scale is just like the, the, with the beginning of the end for any republic. I think it can, republics are adaptable, especially good republics. And, and I think that's what Rome shows. You know, Rome started as a city state. Um, when it became a republic, it was smaller than Rhode Island. The republic functioned effectively uh, pretty much through the time that Rome dominated all of Italy south of the Po River. That's a, a tremendously large state. And Rome had more citizens than any other ancient state, even in that moment. And the Republic, because Rome was expanding sort of slowly and, and, you know, very deliberately, it was able to sort of develop and evolve in accordance with that expansion. And it didn't produce these kinds of tensions um, because it was slow enough that you could find compromises to deal with the new situation. But the second century expansion is so dramatic and so fast um, that the system cannot respond fast enough. And I, I think you could see, say, in the United States, the um, the really dramatic economic change. It's not territorial expansion, but it's sort of economic expansion that more or less sort of unleashed in the 80s. You know, we don't know how to respond to that. 
they've happened so quickly and they've changed things so dramatically and they've put resources um, in society in ways that are so unequal that the real challenge is how then does the Republic evolve to deal with that? And when you're working in a model that is designed to promote, promote sort of deliberation and consensus building and compromise, it's not capable of responding to something like the rise of the tech economy in 20 years. We don't know how to do that, and our system's not designed to really deal with that. And so those tensions come about when change happens so dramatically and quickly, and new resources come online so fast um, that the Republic can't kind of keep up. Uh, and I think the Roman example kind of shows one of the challenges that we face. You know, we've, we've also had a really dramatic kind of change in how our society works. Um, with wealth being distributed in ways that I think 30, 40 years ago, we couldn't have even imagined. Um, and our institutions just can't evolve that quickly. And what Rome shows is when that happens, there's a real threat to the Republic. There's a re and the success of the Republic is really endangered unless people can figure out how to kind of retrench, step back and figure out how to build sort of new consensuses around um, policies that can help deal with these really dramatic shifts in, in lifestyle and um, economic, uh, economic orders. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you talk about in the book how this the death of the Republic is a shared thing in Rome. Like everybody, every wink, every nod, every sort of kind of, ah, it's just bribery. That's how things are done. This is the cost of doing business, pay to play, you know, the, the, the privatization of the army. Like it's all, it's like death by a thousand cuts, right? Like every, and eventually it's the norm. And I, I think about that today, like we, people are just, oh, all politicians do this. And that's also, so like the built-in cynicism, right? is part of what allows the things that make us cynical, right? Like, like, you know, like, so we kind of, we, we, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy to some degree. Exactly. I mean, every time something is done and there is no sort of consequence or there's no blowback or there's no like popular sort of um, outrage that it happened, it will just be done again. And then the next thing that's a little more sort of, dangerous will be done to just sort of see if it works. Um, in a sense, um, I, I think that we are all becoming immune to this, this sort of the violations of norms that are happening on a regular basis. And once one norm is violated, you know, we're, we sort of move on and say, okay, that's the new normal, but it shouldn't be the new normal. You know, we, we should say it doesn't make sense that this is happening. Um, when you get into the last decades of the Roman Republic, you start seeing elections getting postponed. You know, there's there's people who are, you know, uh, when they're supposed to be a vote, they, they organize some mob violence and they prevent the vote from happening. And first elections are, elections are delayed for a month. Um, but then eventually, as you get into the late 50s, you go an entire year without elections because the people running for election kept you know, making it impossible to have the vote. It would be absolutely inconceivable, even 10 years before, that you would not have elections for an entire year. But because you had this sort of gradual sort of movement towards postponing elections because of violence, you get to the point where you just can't do it at all. I want to take a brief moment to ask you a quick question. Do you like this podcast? Do you enjoy it? Do you look forward to listening to it while you do a morning, afternoon, or evening routine, or while you're exercising, or while you're caught frustrated in traffic? Do you tune into it because of the conversations you find here? 
if the answer to the aforementioned questions is yes, or even just a solid maybe, would you do something for me? Would you consider becoming a Patreon sponsor of the podcast for just five bucks a month? Or more, it's for a good cause. You can help this podcast and one of the many others I do keep going. And you can help launch several other podcast projects I've got in the works. So I invite you to be a patron through Patreon of this, which I think is an art form you're enjoying and will continue to enjoy. Again, any contribution is welcome, but for five bucks a month, you will get a shout out on the thank you roll call, which begins right now. Thank you, David Babico, Andrew Stravitz, Barry Stewart, Ben Crosby, Ben DeHart, Carol Clemens, Charlotte Donlin, David Norling, David Saul, Ellis Brazil, Jennifer Spite, Jennifer Underwood, Jim Cress, Joel Wentz, John Schneider, Jonathan Butran, Jordan Mossberger, Josh Redder, Kai Wittenpeg, Larry Rule, Liam O'Brien, Michael Butera, Peter Steigerwald, Samantha Konauer, Sari Graham, Simone Garabedian, and Stephen Rowe. If you want to join these patrons through Patreon, just go to patreon.com forward slash Scott Kent Jones. Thanks again for listening, and now back to the show. It's inter- I'm interested too that that you know you think about someone like Aristotle right who who likes republics I mean he thinks that, that there's dangers in too much direct democracy right you, there's, it beca- it can become mob rule and so you need these checks and balances and and you know he he you know in the politics he's talking about oligarchies mob rule democracy and all these things I'm wondering how conscious are like are Roman republicans of alternative systems like you know other you know like of of competing systems. Like, how do they see themselves in relation to uh, to competitors in the ancient world? They, is there much written, Is there much on that? Um, most of the stuff we have is coming from Cicero, and it's late Republic. Um, you know, it's the last. Like Cicero is actually murdered by Octavius and his um, associates. So Cicero really is like the last generation of the Republic, um, and <clears throat> you have a bit of it in the second century. Uh, but it's mainly Greeks kind of trying to describe to other Greeks why the Roman system prevailed over the successors of Alexander the Great and the the remaining free city-states in, in Greece. Um, I think if you were to ask a Roman, what is it that your political system does? You ask a Roman in, say, the 5th century BC who's living under the early Republic, what is it your political system does? Uh, they would say that this is, in essence, a kind of shared enterprise for all citizens. And citizens elect people who will sort of be able to serve as their voice, but citizens should not always have a direct voice in what's happening. They instead elect people who will then sort of propose policies and you can approve those policies or not approve those policies, but those people in essence are your chosen voice in this political system. But everybody has a role to play and some people have a larger role than others. Um, and I think that that would be the, the model that the Roman Republic is sort of based on. They wouldn't, uh, they wouldn't want a direct democracy. I think they would have felt, unlike Athenians, that a direct democracy, it's not desirable in a Roman context. Um, what's desirable instead is something where you have deliberation. And de- direct democracy is not a deliberative thing in the Roman mind. You know, it's something that is responsive. And so you can have something where, you know, like in the, the Peloponnesian War, you, you send out a general and immediately you change your mind and you send a ship to call him back. Um, to the Romans, that's insane. 
You know, what, what they would want is to elect people who are charged for a year with making decisions. And as they make those decisions, you know, they, they will be accountable for the decisions that they make at the end of their term. And if they do a good job, then they get something out of it. And if they do a bad job, then that's probably the last office that they hold. Um, but that would be also different from an oligarchy where in an oligarchy, those people are not chosen and they don't actually represent anybody except for themselves. Um, and so what I think a Roman would say is we don't want an oligarchy either because that doesn't give enough of a voice to the people and it, it moves people out of the political system in a way that is not desirable. Um, and so the Republic is more or less this idea of a citizen-held corporation almost, where some citizens have not very much of a voice, some citizens have a much larger voice, but everybody has a voice of some sort, and therefore everybody has an obligation of some sort as well. Yeah, and this is like, I think of like Edmund Burke, I forget what issue it was, was where like, he explained to his constituents, right, in England, like, I mean, you don't, you elect me for my judgment. Like not, and so that's sometimes not going to be popular, right? In the, in the sense that, I mean, because you think about like, uh, like I was, I, I think I heard Francis Fukuyama interviewed recently somewhere. He's like, you're like, we have so many referendums in California that like, you know, we get this long book. He's like, I'm a political scientist. I don't have time to understand the complexities issues. This is what I do for, so there's this acknowledgement, right? That uh, the, the expertise kind of matters, right? Things like Brexit, things like, you know, the big, like you're talking about big military situations in, in the Republic, like the average citizen just can't weigh all this, right? That you, that you, that for the good of the whole, we need, we need experts. Exactly. And that's the function of the Roman Senate. You know, the, the Roman Senate is this institution that's, you know, it's not elected, not directly. You know, these are people who are um, former office holders. And so the idea of the Roman Senate is, all right, something's going on. Um, the people in office right now haven't really seen it or, you know, they, they don't really feel like they are comfortable making a decision. Let's ask people who do know, you know, people who held that job 40 years ago or people who held that job 20 years ago. Let's see what they think. Let's get their advice. The Roman Senate doesn't directly make laws, but it gives advice on what policies should be pursued. And generally that advice is followed. In the late Republic, sometimes not, but generally the advice of the Senate is followed um, because it's seen as a, a sort of place where people with experience and some wisdom can come to a consensus about what policy makes the most sense. And the people who are in office at that moment then act on that policy because they judge that these people actually know what they're talking about. Yeah, and this is sort of like what what the best uh conservative intellectuals would say, right, like argue for traditions, right? Like you, like oftentimes we just don't quite understand what holds everything together, like uh, collectively, like there are cultural forces, there are religious civic traditions and something like the Senate is a repository, right? Of that stuff of the glue that holds things together, right? It's not, it's in some sense, it's more important, right? Than the, than the, than the functional offices, because those things, Without the norms, without without the civic culture, that stuff just deteriorates. Exactly, and I think that um, when Appius Claudius goes into the Senate to say we shouldn't make a deal with Pyrrhus, he's doing that. You know, he's saying we have these norms. Like you're thinking because you're in office for a year, you're thinking it would be really bad if I lost a war to Pyrrhus. I want to make a deal and end this. And Appius Claudius is saying, yeah, but there's more to it than that. Um, as a, as a society, this is what we stand for. You know, these are the values that define us as a society. And that's what the Senate is supposed to do. 
You know, it's supposed to take a longer view than somebody who's immediately responsible for solving a problem in a year or two years or four years, if you're thinking in American context. Um, the Senate is supposed to basically step back and say, this is who we are as a people. These are the principles that we are supposed to uphold. Uh, and this is how we're supposed to work as a polity. And in this situation, what might be good in the short term or what might be popular now could actually do serious damage in the long term. And when the Roman Senate was working like it was supposed to, that was the kind of input it would give is, you know, we should respond in this way because, you know, it has this short term implication, but it's also consistent with these kind of long term trends and values that we as a society uphold. Um, and, you know, in a sense, I think that was probably what the founders intended our Senate to be like as well. It's interesting, too, that you, you know, we talked a little before the inequality, like you have, I mean, Obviously, it's not a modern liberal democratic republic, but it, but again, there is a meaningful concept of citizenry and, and this sort of shared bargain. We're in this together. That erodes, right? Like as the as as you get into like the 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 first century and things like that. Like it starts, I guess, in the second century. Right? That that erodes, and so people. This is like the seeds of populism, right? Like I, I don't feel like I, I'm on the ship and. Here, Caesar, somebody's promising me grain and this and that, and he's charismatic and he's a man of the people. And all of a sudden, right, like th that pragmatism often just wins. I mean, it's funny because you can't think of a populist movement that uh, it, it, I, I mean, I can't think of one that, it, 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 that calls for uh, restraint, right? <laughs> I can't, right? There's no populist movement that says, hey, civic order, limitations, right? Like, I mean, they're, they're not... I mean, you could say maybe the Tea Party had some of that, like uh, at the edges, but like generally, like that's not what a populist, uh, up, uh, like energy. It, it doesn't lead to restraint and esteeming civic convention, whether it's left or right, right? But this is just we want this and we want it now. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's a, a way of thinking about the second century um, that basically makes the case that um, there's a move in Rome to try to limit the ability of regular people to sort of speak out against policies they're uncomfortable with, um, in large part because the elite just wants to sort of move on. And what that means is they diminish the participation of regular people in all aspects of the state. So during the war with Hannibal, the Roman state achieved what is probably the only time in the ancient world that a society of, of that size fully mobilized for total war. You know, something like probably 70% or more of the, the men who were able and eligible for military service served in that war at, at the same time. Um, the resources of the state, this state was effectively bankrupt and taking out loans from its citizens to fight the war with Hannibal. Um, but what that did was it actually gave regular people a really powerful voice if they didn't like what was going on. Um, and as you move into the second century, the Roman state does things like it, it eliminates taxation in Italy, because that means then regular people don't have an economic say in what's going on. They don't, they don't have any skin in the game. And so they can't like have a tax strike if they don't like a policy. Um, they limit recruitment into the armies. And so what that means is most citizens are not serving in the army anymore. And you manage to then kind of marginalize their voices at a time when their economic prospects are becoming less uh, secure and they're feeling some economic strain. Um, and that's the turn to populism. You know, after a generation or so of that, where people don't feel like they can 
exercise any kind of meaningful voice in, in the policies that are being pursued. And in particular, the stuff that's going on in the Roman state that the state has no policy about. You know, it has no policy about economic inequality. If you're not taxing Italians, you're not doing anything to address that inequality at all, positively or negatively. And you start getting movements to reform electoral laws um, in this sort of 10 decades or 10 years before uh, you actually have the sort of emergence of Tiberius Gracchus and, and truly sort of overt populism. Um, but you can see that this sort of move to, to move people out of the political arena and remove the ability that they have to kind of exercise any kind of voice about policy beyond just electing representatives, it feeds this kind of populism. And you're exactly right that the populism that emerges is a group of people saying, we need to do something. And something needs to happen without really thinking about the consequences of, of what it will take to make something happen. As opposed to like the third century ethos or the founding fathers, right? That, hey, it's better to do nothing than the wrong. Exactly. It's, it's, it flips it. It's better to do anything than nothing, right? Yeah. And that's, and that's the thing. When, when Tiberius Gracchus proposes reforms in, in 133, those reforms actually wouldn't have made much economic difference. Um, Italy probably had a few million people in it. And what Tiberius Gracchus is proposing is to address economic inequality by redistributing enough land to maybe give 20,000 families farms in a, a population of maybe 4 million. You know, it, it doesn't mean anything, but it means everything. You know, yeah, it's, it's like, okay, we got a couple coal uh, uh, plants back on, uh, running. So America's going to be great again, right? We're going to stem the tide of global e economic district. Yeah, we're going to slow all these forces by building a wall, get some coal back. And, and then that's, yeah, yeah, right. Right. That, but that's, oh, at least it's something, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, that's the thing. It's, it's all about, for Tiberius Gracchus, it's about the symbol. It's about saying the government will do something for you, something, you know, and maybe you don't feel it, but somebody like you will feel it. And that's a really interesting move because it puts the Roman state in this position where it's giving things to people, but not necessarily asking anything of them. Whereas the third century Roman state, it gave you basically nothing. You know, there's no, there's nothing it's doing for you beyond asking you to do stuff and it will reward you with honor, but it's not really going to even pay you very much to do this. Um, the second century Roman state starts moving in this direction where for citizens who are, you know, relatively politically non-influential, they'll start getting things, but they won't be asked for much. Um, and this is the, the sort of populist move. Uh, it, it's an interesting move, but it's one that ultimately sets up a century later uh, for people like Caesar and Augustus to, to really kind of establish a mechanism whereby they just give people stuff without asking them to even participate politically. It's, it's interesting, too, because when you talk about the mobilization against someone like Hannibal, right, and 70% and of the population being involved, you think of like the parallel of World War II and how many congressmen and senators post-war Sir had experienced serving, enlisted voluntarily. Many, you know, like George H. W. Bush, like that creates a civic spirit, right? Like that you were in it. To, you did this big thing. We stopped the elephants. We stopped, We did it together, and so you had this shared sense of identity, right? That when you again, when you kind of that basically that kind of when you lose that, right? Like again, you lose that that civic the stuff that you can't legislate, the stuff that procedurally can't be enforced, that glue that holds the thing together. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's quite interesting in taking the sort of big picture of the 20th century. The United States was not particularly um, politically like functional in the 1920s. You know, the League of Nations and the failure to sort of implement the international role that Wilson had imagined for the United States, it doesn't say great things about the United States' you know, functionality as a polity. And as you move into the 30s with sort of Lend-Lease and all of this kind of, you know, almost subterranean like engagement in conflicts in Europe. Um, you know, again, what you're seeing is a political dysfunction. Roosevelt could not have really probably gotten us into that war until Pearl Harbor. But after Pearl Harbor, everybody says we're in. And the generation that served in that war, I think, understood very intimately the necessity of having a republic that functions um, and that builds compromise and builds consensus because they saw what happens when it doesn't. Um, and it's interesting that it's when that generation starts passing from the scene in the 90s. You know, the the George H.W. Bush generation hands over to the baby boomers. You start seeing this dysfunction sort of reemerge in really sort of dramatic ways. Um, and it's a generation that didn't know that particular type of sacrifice across all class levels. You know, instead, some people had bone spurs and some people served. And... That promotes a sort of yeah. You think of like Bob Mueller in contrast to Donald Trump, right? Mueller, like I think he had a, a bad knee or something. Worked to rehab it for a year as a Princeton grad, so he could voluntarily enlist. Like I mean, that's like the old spirit that we lost, right? I mean that that's that civic sort of sense of connection to our values, the urgency that that the, there's something bigger than you that you're a part, right? Of. And you're fighting for something um, that's valuable, and then when you come back, you you also feel it's valuable. And you do things to sort of preserve it and to keep it healthy. Um, you know, you listen to some of the the representatives and senators who were in the Republican Party in the 80s, and they were deal makers. You know, they, they were about sort of finding policies that, you know, maybe they didn't totally agree with, um, but they could get on board with. And they would find a compromise and build a consensus because it's it's important that the country functions. And that's in large part, I think, because you you literally sort of put your life at stake to make sure the country was still there. So why would you come back and then destroy the country that you tried to save? Um, that's the Roman ethos of the third century. You know, we give our lives to this to this this republic. We do what's asked of us for this republic. And if it's our turn to run this republic, we need to be equally vigilant in protecting its health as if we're on campaign against Pierce of Epirus or Hannibal or whoever. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because you talk in the book about how you there, you have to have like in, in, when the republic was functional, there was this like not winner take all. There was a sense in which you you you, you there were we knew there. There's an awareness that there'll be winners and losers, but you're not trying to vanquish anybody, right? Part of the system is, and you go into it aware, aware of the fact that you might be the loser someday, right? There's shared kind of consensus. And then you get like, with maybe the modern powers, like the Ted Cruz's, right? Like of the, like, you know, Al Franken said, I've heard him say a few times when he was in the Senate, he's like, I effing hate Ted Cruz. And I'm one of the people that likes him more in the Senate, you know, like he's like, <laughs> he's the guy in the small office that cooks fish in the microwave. Right. And like, <laughs> right. And that's, but that's what kills it. Right. Like you, you, when, when you get, when, when you go away from the deal makers and stuff and you get people that don't, don't give a damn about the institution anymore. Right. And so then, and, and then again, you, you, you get this sort of the audit. Now we get where we get, you know, Donald Trump, let's have him burn it all down. Yeah. I think the, the next step in the Roman Republic that is really and truly dangerous is when people who lose start suffering consequences that go beyond the political. Um, and this really starts at the end of the 100s, 
where, um, you know, if, if you pursue a policy agenda and you use sort of threats or intimidation, then the next step is to use violence against you. You know, you used violence to get a policy in place. We can use violence against you. All of a sudden, losing a political conflict isn't just about losing face or losing honor. It's about losing your life, potentially. And once that realization kind of enters Roman political life, people who look like they might lose a conflict will turn to violence because it's their life at stake. Um, whereas before it was their reputation. And you might, you know, you might cut some norms, you might violate some norms or cut some corners to get something that will enhance your reputation or avoid losing your reputation, but you're probably not going to kill anybody. But if you, if the choice is killing somebody or you dying, well, then you're, it's rational almost to think about killing somebody. And as you move into the first century BC, that's the step that a lot of politicians start, not a lot, but a number of Roman politicians start taking. Um, and this ultimately leads to, you know, civil wars, because if you have an army and you make the decision that losing a political fight is going to end probably in your loss of life, you will use that army and you will use it against somebody else with an army. And that's a civil war that is caused completely by the fact that the Republic no longer can guarantee the life and property of a political loser. You, you teach undergrads. And there's these alarming studies that show how many like millennials like don't think it's that important to live in a liberal democracy. I mean, it's some alarming statistics of late have I've seen of late like that. Like, do you see that in in student culture working with? I mean, is there do you see that the change of the lack of urgency around civic things or I mean, or do you get like the the outliers because they like your classes or something? <laughs> um, I, I would say that the students that I get are very intimately interested in how to sort of make things better here. And what they don't want is any kind of partisan discussion of like, yeah, I mean, we should do only what the Democrats say or we should follow Trump without sort of thinking. What, what they want to do is is basically have the representative democracy and the opportunities that it ensures that maybe our generation or our parents' generation had. You know, a, a state in which it's the state looks out for you, um, it provides opportunities for you, it provides education for you, um, and it makes sure that some people are not being advantaged in ways that disadvantage a huge number of other people. But they don't want ideology. What they want to do is instead think critically about what's going on around them right now and what they can possibly do to make it better. And so I think that they are quite interested in, you know, not seeing Rome as the exact sort of path that our future will be, but seeing it as a possible direction we could go um, and a set of lessons that we could learn so that if we see things that are similar, we can avoid falling into the same traps that Rome fell into. But the students I see are not disengaged at all. They're, they're intimately concerned um, because for them, politics directly affects their ability to pay for school, the opportunities they'll have when they come out. Um, I think they feel very sort of impacted by what's going on and, and in some ways um, somewhat afraid of what you know, their prospects will be in, in the future if things continue to go in the way they are. Yeah, because that is the scary thing, right? I think, like, you know, it, I mean, it's not as though that Rome necessarily had like what we would think of as a, as a, a modern middle class, but, but there was more shared resources there there's less i mean at the times when when relative to the history that the republic is good there there is more shared wealth you know there, there is more shared resource right it's 
it's as things get stratified, right. That, you know, things get bad. And the same thing, like we, we had a bur- huge middle class in this country, right. Where people could advance their family's interest and stuff without tons of advanced education as that erodes. You know, I wonder if that's also the, the death knell to a Republic because people, again, like you said, there's no skin in the game. And if, if you're a millennial college student, like, gosh, am I really going to be making it better than my parents? Like this is, I mean, that's the, the sense of urgency, I suppose. Yeah. No, I, I think um, yesterday I was having a conversation with a, a friend of mine who went to Berkeley in the 80s. Um, and he said he paid $250 a quarter to go to Berkeley in the 80s. Wow. Wow. Um, and so for him, you know, that's an education that basically is provided for him to try to figure out what he wants to do and to get skills that he can move forward. But he, in a sense, has the opportunity to make a mistake, right? To, to take a job that isn't a good job or start a career that isn't a great fit for him. And the students that I have now are graduating with so much debt that it's very hard for them to have that same luxury. And that makes it a lot, that makes the stakes a lot higher in everything that's going on. You know, if, if there's a political crisis that affects the economy when they come out, and they don't find a job, that's a lot more serious than someone who paid whatever, you know, $1,200 to go to college versus $120,000 to go to college. Um, and, and I think that's one of the things that, that they particularly are concerned with. You know, they, they, want, they want a republic that works and they want to know how, how to think about what's going on around them so they can make decisions and make choices that will help make that republic they live in work better. I don't think any of them want a system where there's a, a strong man in charge who, you know, gives jobs out as patronage. I think they want a Republic that works and they want in a sense, the system um, that treats people fairly and, you know, that resolves problems and addresses problems in a way that again is broadly supportive and doesn't promote political conflict, but instead promotes sort of compromise. So everybody can focus on building things that make opportunities for people who are young and moving into the world. As a classical historian, right, ancient historian, what movie or serial drama is like, what is like actually doesn't do that much violence? So you're like, this is a really good attempt. And what can you just not even look at without throwing up? Like, what's just awful, <laughs> like for you as a historian? Um, you know, I, I think that some of the, the like, uh, sandal movies from the 50s are okay. Like Spartacus, the, uh, the old Charlton Heston Spartacus, I'm okay with that one. Um, I think that that actually gets into some of the, the interesting ideas. Um, another one that, I mean, this is, it obviously isn't historically accurate at all, but Monty Python's Life of Brian, I think, gives you a <laughs> sense of, you know, like a way to think about the chaos of Israel in the, you know, the first century. Um, the one that I cannot stand is Gladiator. Uh, I think in, in Gladiator, what you have are, um, this evocation of what the Roman Empire was that draws so heavily on stuff like Riefenstahl's Triumph of the Will, like visually quoting the the Nuremberg scenes. You know, like this is horrible to me because this isn't how Romans thought, and it's not what Roman emperors did. Um, and in the in that context, I think what you're doing is taking something and basically completely redefining it in a way that is, for me, really hard to get out of a student's perceptive. Um, perception of the past. Um, 300 also is, is another one where you're just getting stuff that's just kind of really hard. It's really sensationalized, but it's really hard to get a student to then think critically about what's going on um, because you've just given them something that isn't even close to what actually happened. 
Well, I'll tell you, your students are lucky to have you, and I appreciate you writing this book. I mean, I, for any listener that is concerned about the future of our republic and, and democracy, uh, they could do a lot worse than read Mortal Republic. Uh, so thanks for writing it, and thanks for spending some time talking with me. Oh, I loved it. Thank you. This was, this was a lot of fun. Hope we do it again. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Give and Take. If you liked what you heard, please do a couple things for me. They are so helpful if you do them. Share this interview on social media or via email or tag someone in a tweet or something and say, hey, this is great. Check it out. Spread the love and goodness if you found it here. Also, if you could go, please, 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 it takes like 60 seconds. Go to iTunes and write a review and give a, give a rating to the podcast. It really, really helps, especially as things are getting off the ground. And if you want to consider becoming a Patreon sponsor, you can just go right to the link on the podcast page, giveandtake.fireside.fm. You can find all the information there. Thanks to Ed for coming on the podcast. Do check out his book, Mortal Republic. You won't regret it. And thanks again to you for listening to Give and Take. Until next time, friends, fare thee well.